We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and again, I, I'm just so glad to be able to celebrate today with having baptism, a baptism in each service, and, and then uh, being able to have communion in the Lord's Supper today as a, a church family. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to talk about really the meaning of the Lord's Supper, the importance of the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and because uh, that's what Paul's going to talk about here in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11. And so if you're, you're here today, maybe for the first time or the first time in a while, we've been going uh, verse by verse through the book of First Corinthians. And, and in, uh, Paul is writing to a church um, that is in the city of Corinth. And the city of, of Corinth is a port city. And this city, there's just a lot of people coming and going. There's a lot of of uh, just trade that's taking place. There's a lot of money in this city. And because of all the people and because people coming and going from all over, it's also got a reputation that there's a lot of sin and, and just wickedness here in the city of, of Corinth. It would be like modern day, like as you know, people would maybe look at like Las Vegas, Sin City, or if you're thinking international, like New Amsterdam, it's just one of those places where they're just known for partying and really anything goes. And that was what Corinth had the reputation for. But yet what is what's so encouraging and so powerful is that that, that Paul is is in the, the very beginning of the book of Corinthians is saying that that look God has his church here in this city. That it might seem like an unlikely place and a place where where it would be the last place you would think that that God is moving and God is working, but God had his church, God had his people there in the city of Corinth and to be a light and to be an, an impact on the city of Corinth. And I had mentioned back months ago when we were starting out uh, preaching through the book, how that there was like this trend about 30, 30 some years ago in the United States where churches would, would leave the city. They would go out to the outskirts, to the suburbs, and, and, and then they would complain, and then the church would complain about how bad the city was. It's like, well, we're called to be an impact and a light to the city. We're not called. Now, that doesn't mean we partake in all the sinful things. We're going to look at that today. We're a separate people. But that doesn't mean, though, that we isolate completely from our culture and society. God has placed us here. God has specifically placed Cross Point Baptist in Davenport to be to make an impact, to be a light, to speak truth to our culture and to our city. But what was happening in Corinth is really what is happening so often today with the church in general, where instead of the church impacting the culture, the culture was having a more impact upon the church. And that's why Paul is, even though he starts out encouraging, letting them know like God's not done with you guys. God has a purpose for you. God will complete his work in you. But then he's addressing all these issues that are going on. I mean, all of these things. And again, they were influenced much by their culture. And for many of them, they were probably just saved out of that culture. And so there's a lot of growth that needs to take place. There's a lot of things that they're confused about. And so, so Paul's writing the, the book of Corinthians, addressing these issues. And of course, we believe that, yes, Paul was the human author, but behind him, the, 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 the author of the word of God, it was God. This is the living word of God that God breathed it out. He used human instruments to write these things down. They wrote with their own personality, with their own style, but yet behind all of the human authors of the word of God, there was one divine 
author. And so Paul's writing, he's addressing the issues going on at Corinth. And, and then as now as we're, we're getting into the, 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 the second half, really, of the book, he's addressing questions that were asked of him. And so we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul says, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So uh, last Sunday, Jacob preached on 1 Corinthians 9, and then this last Wednesday, I preached on 1 Corinthians 10. And basically, the, the thought is, look, just because you're blessed, just because you're in Christ and you're a follower of Christ, like, doesn't guarantee, though, that you're always going to please Christ. Like, he says he gives the Old Testament example of, hey, be, beware, like, like Israel, they had all these blessings, but there was times God, God wasn't pleased with them. So he, he's, he's, he's transitioning now. In chapter 11, he's saying, follow me as I'm following Christ. And wow, what a great statement. What a, what a great motto. I mean, as we who know the Lord, we're called to walk alongside and disciple and help teach and lead others, but may we be ever so cautious that we are pointing people to Christ, that as people are following us, it's follow us as we're following Christ. Follow us as we're following Christ. And so Paul, who is an apostle, one who is called, one who is sent by God, he even says, look, as you're following me, make sure you're following me as I'm following Christ. And so now in chapter 11, it might, these next verses seem a little bit odd or a little bit out of place because Paul's then going to, he, he's going into things like women with head coverings. And he's talking about men taking the responsibility to lead. And, and, and he's like, because the angels and, and, and it's like, what, what exactly is he, is he talking about here? But what he's pointing out is, look, that God has a specific role for each of us. And he's saying, even though I'm an apostle, and I, I, I've been called by God, I'm, a, I'm one that's sent by God to plant churches, to preach the gospel. He's like, look, I have to be in submission to Christ. And so he's giving some, some earthly examples and talking about embrace the role that God has given you to embrace. He says, look, the, the head of man is Christ, and the, um, and, and the head of the woman is the man. Again, this is speaking about in the context of in a marriage relationship, in a family, God looks at the, the man as the leader. doesn't mean he's the boss, and doesn't mean that the woman doesn't have a significant role. Um, sometimes people will take that out of context and try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean, and think that, oh, I get to be the bully and boss everybody around. No, because he's going to point out, look, the woman was created from man. He's talking about creation. Where, where God took the rib out of Adam, made a woman. And then he's going to say, but also man comes from woman. Man is born of woman. And, and what he's talking about, even with, with women keeping their, their head covered and when they prophesy or pray that their, their head keep it covered. In verse 5 it says, don't dishonor the head. For that is even all as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her not be Covered for man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of, of man. So now he's talking about, look, the man, you know, is not of the woman, but the woman of the man speaking of creation. And he's talking about verse 10 for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. We don't know exactly what that means. It seems like what he's saying is like even the angels they're created beings and they're in submission, subjection to, to God. It could be that he's talking about angels 
are um, really observing, especially within the local body and how the church is operating. And again, we don't know, know exactly what that means, but the overall point is he's saying, look, embrace the, embrace the role God's given to you. And culturally here, for a woman to wear like a head covering or a veil was basically them saying, I'm embracing the role God's, God's given to me. And for men, he's saying, look, don't push off that responsibility to lead, that God has given us and created us uniquely, that men and women, by the way, we're created equally as far as value in the sight of God, amen? But God has created us for different roles, and we're only going to find true joy and satisfaction as we embrace the role that God has given to us. And I know that can, that can be a maybe a triggering thing today in our culture to say. Um, and again, we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about that women aren't just as valuable and that women can't, you know, ever lead anything. No, we're talking about in God's design order here. He's saying, look, embrace that role. And I would say to men, to men, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That sacrificial love, that's completely opposite of trying to be the boss and tell everybody what to do and bully people. Christ's model was, no, he actually served the church and loved the church and gave himself for the church. And men, let's not push that responsibility aside. God has called us to love and lead our families in the sense that we're the ones responsible for what God has given to us. So now he's transitioning in verse 17. He's going to talk about what's going on in Corinth when they're doing the Lord's Supper, when they're doing communion. He says in verse number 17, he says, look, I declare to you, and he's like, I praise you not that you've come together, not for the better, but for the worse. He's like, you're gathering, but it's not for the better. It's actually for the worse. And here's why. He says, because when you come together in the church, I hear that there's divisions among you. There's divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, verse 20, in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in everyone, or for in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper and one is hungry, and the other is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He's like, I praise you not. Here's what was taking place. Paul's saying, look, when you come together as a church, and particularly when you're coming and you're having communion, when you're having the Lord's Supper, this should be a thing that you're united. But instead... They were divided. What was taking place was that the, the rich, and historically we, we know that the church would do something called the love feast, a big feast before, um, really before they would observe the Lord's Supper. Honestly, it probably was all one combined. And what would happen though is that they would come and gather and the rich, those that had a lot that were kind of in charge of organizing everything, they would bring the best food and they would eat the best food before everybody else got there. And then when the poor or the common folk would come, there would be nothing left. And so then they would feel embarrassed and ashamed and they would feel left out. This is what was taking place. Basically, there was this division, this prejudice over the rich and poor. 
And Paul's saying, look, when, when you come together, when you come together to the table, when the church is gathered, it should be something that unifies you. The Lord's Supper is something that reminds us of our unity, our unity that we have in Christ, because we are through Christ's death, through his burial, through his resurrection, we are united with Christ. And because of that, we should be united with one another. Paul's saying, look, this is not good. I'm not praising you for this because there's division. When coming together should unite, it has caused division. It's caused division. But yet the Lord's Supper, remembering the grace that we have been given, should cause us to have humility and should cause us to recognize that all ground is level at the cross, that all of us are united in Christ. And there shouldn't be division when we're coming together as a church and when we're coming to partake of the Lord's Supper. It should be something that we're unified and it shouldn't matter the color of our skin or the socioeconomic status that we have, that through Christ we have unity, that through Christ the church comes and we don't uplift our differences. We downplay differences because we have so much more in common through what we have and through who we are in Christ. He's saying, but that's not what's happening. You're self-centered. You're, you're showing prejudice and, and you're embarrassing those that don't have a lot. You're starting without them. And that's why that's why at the end of the chapter in verse 33, he says, you know, brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry or wait for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home that you come not together into condemnation. So he's saying, look, if you're hungry, go ahead and eat, eat what you want to at home. But when you gather, it shouldn't just be about stuffing yourself. It should be about preferring others and, and the fellowship with one another. Wait for the whole body to gather. Wait for the whole body to gather. The Lord's Supper is something that reminds us as a church of the unity that we have in Christ and the unity that we have with one another. Look, there might be different interests that we all have, right? And there's maybe you have certain hobbies that someone else doesn't have, but yet, look, when the church comes together, it doesn't matter. We, we, we find and should find this unity we should find that, you know what, we have so much more in common because of who we are in Christ. And as Christians, we're called to a higher standard. We should be the ones that are setting the bar with what it means to be unified. And so much in our culture is, let's, let's emphasize all the things that we should be divided about. Let's emphasize all these things that you owe me and that... It, but look, as believers, as followers of Christ... We come together to, to, to worship and we come to the table. And may we not see skin color. May we not see different levels of, well, you're, you have money and I don't. And you have more than me and so I'm, gonna, I'm better than you. No, no, we have so much unity that's found in Christ. And that's why so much of, of, of just this, this teaching, it's dangerous, that's out there, that's just, let's focus on any division that we can, that we can find. That so, no, we're all in the body of Christ. Those who know the Lord, we come and we are united. And Paul's saying, look, when you come together, it should be for the better, but instead it's for the worse. He's like, I'm not praising you for this. 
This should be a time of unity. But look at verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye drink this, or as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, he's saying, You're showing the Lord's death till he comes. So he's saying, Look, the, the, we gather as, as a church, and when we're, we're, we come to the table, when we have communion, it's something that should be unifying as a church because it's showing us that we are united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and we're united as believers. And it's a time to remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. His body was broken. That's the, 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 the symbol or the picture of when the bread is broken, that unleavened bread, because Christ was without sin. He was pure. He was holy, lived the life we could never live. And his body was broken. Now, not one bone was broken. But when it says that his body was broken, it's talking about the horrific death that he died. Saying he died. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And it should, we should be reminded of this as believers. When we're partaking of this communion, it's something that should cause us to have a humility and a heart of gratefulness. Remembering Christ's sacrifice because he did what we could never do. He lived the life we couldn't. And he died the death that we all deserve. But yet he took our place. He was the sacrificial lamb. He died without sin. And he died a horrible death for you and for me. So that we can now, we can now be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of our own merit. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of any good work that we've done but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he said the word, it is, the words, it is finished. It is finished. Say, it is accomplished. Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled all that was needed. And there's an invitation to all who will believe, to trust in him. So Paul's saying, look, when you gather, when you gather at the table, when you gather, it's a time to to remember the unity that you have in Christ. There shouldn't be divisions among you. It's also it's a time to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's a time also to remember that we are a separate people. Now we're unified in Christ. We're unified with one another. But it also reminds us this. When we come and we gather at the table. Reminds us that we're separated from this world. Not, not in the sense like we're isolating from society. Talking about separate from the sinful things that maybe we once did before we knew Christ. It, on Wednesday, I talked about this in chapter 10. And, um, and many of you were here. and Some of you were able to, to watch it online. But he's reminding them in chapter 10. What was taking place was this. That, that the church, some in the church at Corinth were going back to these pagan rituals, these pagan feasts where there was idol worship taking place. Now, Paul points out, look, when you're going to the marketplace, you don't have to question, was this meat offered to idols? He's like, look, the idols aren't real. Meat offered to idols. Like, you know, it's it basically saying you have freedom. Don't stress out about asking 
Every person you come in contact with was this meat offered to idols. But he's saying there's a difference when you're going to these pagan temples where they are worshiping these false gods, these idols. He's saying, look, it is, it is the, 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 the table of devils. He's saying there's demonic activity taking place in this idol worship. And some of the church at Corinth, they were believers. They were in Christ and they were coming to the, the body, coming to the table, partaking in the Lord's Supper. But yet they were also partaking in these pagan feasts and rituals. Paul's saying, how can you eat at the table of devils and the table of the Lord? What he's pointing out is that we as believers are a separate people. We're a holy people. That doesn't mean we walk around acting like we're holier than everybody else around us. But it does mean that when we're saved and we know the Lord, there should be things in our life that are different than before we knew Christ. That before we knew Christ, we did all these things and lived this certain way. But now that we know Christ, there should be a change in our life. That we're holy before God. And again, we're, as Christians aren't perfect, we're not sinless. We struggle each and every day. But the point is this, that there should be that, that sanctification, that holiness where God is changing us. And Paul's saying, look, here at the church at Corinth, like, Man, you guys are going to these pagan feasts and, and celebrations of these false gods. And yet then you're coming to church and coming to the table of the Lord and acting like, what's the big deal? And he's saying it is a big deal because as believers, we're a separate people. We're unified in Christ. We're unified with one another. But we should be separate from the sinful things of this world. And he says, look, as often as you drink, verse 26, as often as you drink this bread or eat this bread, sorry, and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death till he come. So he's talking about, look, when you're doing this, it's in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. But when Christ, when he was observing, observing communion with his followers, the last supper, he told them this. He said, the next time, I'm not going to partake in this, in this communion until I do it with you in my kingdom. For believers, when we gather, not only does communion remind us of the unity that we have as believers and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and that we're a separate people, but it's also for us to remember. It's an, a time of expectation that Christ is coming. That, that the kingdom that we are a part of, yes, Christ rules and reigns now. And his kingdom is now in a sense. But he's saying, look, but, but Christ is coming again. Christ is going to return. And so live in a way that we're expecting that. There's a kingdom that's yet to come. For believers, this life here isn't it. There's more that's to come. And when we come and we gather, we're celebrating that, that we are part of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will never end. All the kingdoms of this earth, they come and they go. There's one kingdom, though, that will remain forever. That is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom we are a part of. And so as we're anticipating and living and expect, expecting the return of Christ... It shouldn't cause us to live in fear. It shouldn't cause us to, to hunker down and just wait for Christ's return. It should cause us to live in a way of having boldness. Living in a way of knowing that our king is returning. 
It's a time of, of expectation, anticipating that return of Christ. But then he closes out and says that it's a time of examination, of examining our heart when we partake of communion. Verse number 28, he says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That word damnation is talking about drinking judgment to yourself. He says, look for this cause that many among you, they're sick. Many sleep. Some have died. Because they were playing around at communion. He says, look, if we judge ourselves, then we shouldn't be judged. But when we're judged, we are chastened or disciplined of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, and he says, reminding them again, when you come together, wait for one another, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So he's pointing out to them, look, the communion, when we have the Lord's Supper, it's a time of examination. And keep in mind, this might seem like, ooh, this is pretty harsh language. Like, man, eating and drinking judgment. And talking about, man, if, if, we're, if we're playing around at communion, then you expect that you're going, as a believer, that you're going to be chastened or you're going to be disciplined from God. Now, again, all bad things that happen in our life is not God punishing us, right? There's many reasons that there can be things, there, there can be trying things in our life. And it's many times it has nothing to do with God punishing us. It's just, hey, we live in a fallen world. Or maybe God's brought that in our life not to punish us, but because he's molding us and making us more like himself. And he's bringing that trial to do that. But there are times where, man, we sin and we don't listen to God. We don't follow his word. And we kind of reap the consequences of our own foolish choices. And God's not doing that in anger to us but in, in love. And so, again, it might seem harsh, but keep in mind the context here. The church at Corinth, the, the, there were men that were going to these pagan, pagan feasts and hooking up with prostitutes. They were, they were going to these pagan feasts and worshiping idols. They were not considering one another. They were showing prejudice against the people that didn't have much and eating up the best for themselves and shaming the poor. So that's what's going on. And Paul's saying, like, you're playing around with communion. And this should be a sobering thing. This should be a sobering thing. Examine your heart. Examine your heart, church at Corinth. And us as Crosspoint, it's like, let's examine our heart. And again, I think that these warnings are not necessarily, that the point of it is not that we're just seeing who we can forbid to have communion. I think it's more of, let's prepare our hearts to receive communion. Amen? Let's prepare our hearts. Let's examine our hearts. And so, look, I have to ask you. And I have to ask myself, like, is there, like, blatant, un, or blatant known sin in our life that we're just brushing off? Well, what a great time to, to deal with that sin. Don't have the mindset, oh, well, I just won't have communion. No. Let's make sure our heart's right before God. Let's examine our heart. And maybe there's things in your life you're living in a way that you know isn't pleasing to God. 
Again, Corinth here, we're talking about worshiping idols. We're talking about they're their sinning sexually. We're talking about they're their blatantly showing prejudice. Maybe it's those things. Maybe it's something else, though, that you're dealing with. When we come, we gather as a church. When we come to the table, let's examine our heart. And, and please, if, there's, if, you, if you know that there's something in your life, there's sin, ongoing sin in your life, the whole point is, well, let's examine that. And let's make that relationship right with God. Maybe you're here, you're not a, a believer. Let me just say this. We're really glad that you're here. We want you to come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. We want you to put your faith in Christ. But when, when the church, when we gather and we partake of communion, this is something for believers to partake of. When we partake of this, and just in a, a moment, we're going to pass the, the communion. And when you get it, you can partake of it. But... When you take of this communion, before we do that, we're going to have a moment of just taking a minute to pray and examining our heart. Because when we partake of this communion, it's reminding us, should remind us, we're doing it in remembrance. Remembrance. Remembrance of our unity that we have with Christ and should be unified with other believers. It's a time to remember Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. It's a time to, of, of anticipation that Christ is returning. It's a time to remind us we're a separate people. We're a holy people. It's a time to examine our hearts. So while this is a time of celebration, it's also a time to examine. Examine our heart. It's a time to remember that we are a pure and holy people, not because of anything good in us, but it's because of what Christ has done for us. So we invite you to partake with communion. If you know the Lord, if you're a believer and have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake of communion with us. Before we do that, I'd like to just have a moment of prayer. And with our heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you...